Well, good morning, faith family. Man, after watching that, I just hope the movie is as good as the trailer, you know what I mean? <laughs> if you got a Bible, go to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. We are starting a brand new series this morning. Uh, we're going to be going this fall through the book of Acts right now. Lord willing, I think we'll go through Acts chapter 15. That's kind of the plan uh, to do that. And, uh, but I want to take a moment this morning while you're turning to Acts 1, and I've got a little bit of a longer introduction that I want to give which actually sets up the reason uh, for the book of Acts. Many of you know that this time of year, we start launching a lot of new ministries and you know, programs get started back up and kind of the fall launch of things around here. And um, it's important for me to give you just kind of a brief state of the church update on where we are. And that's actually going to explain why we're going to spend the fall in the book of Acts. Let me just say, I bring you wonderful news of what God is doing in our faith family. I hope you don't get sick of me saying that, but I absolutely am ecstatic, excited, thrilled as to what God has been doing over the last several months in our faith family. There is such an excitement and an energy. I mean, like how many of you, like you can't wait to get to church, just excited to be with God's people? Anybody? Good, good. I'm not the only one. There is an excitement here. I've shared with you just some of the emails of life change. Uh, I'm not going to read any of them specifically, but these are the kinds of emails that I've received over the last few months. Uh, People who were on the verge of suicide that have now found hope. Like I literally have an email in my inbox that says, I do not know what would have happened to me had I not been at church today. Now that's incredible in terms of what God has been doing in people's lives. People whose spiritual lives have been stale, have been rededicated and renewed. The unchurched that have become involved and engaged in church again. Individuals and families who are going through tremendous suffering have found encouragement in the gospel. There's been a hunger for God's Word and a hunger for Jesus. I've got emails about uh, runaways, people who have run away from God and yet have returned home and experienced the outrageous grace of their heavenly Father. I've got emails of people who were lost but are now found. Every one of those categories and more represent emails I have that represent actual people whose lives have been changed by the power of the gospel. Isn't that awesome to think of what God is doing in people's lives? And, and this is translated into some great numerical growth. Our worship attendance is up 25%, about 500 people. In fact, even a year later, after adding our Saturday night service and our overflow on Sunday morning, our Sunday morning services are still anywhere from 70 to 90% full. I mean, just look around. There's not that many seats in here. And uh, so we praise God that he continues to bring people who are engaging in worship and staying with us. In fact, our, for our visitors and guests, we've added 500 new family units to our database. We've seen 20% growth in the amount of givers and an 18% growth in overall giving. We've had 100 people unite with our faith family in covenant membership. We've seen 103 people do the step of obedience of baptism to say, I am not ashamed to be identified with Jesus. And we see this throughout our ministries, men's and women's and children and students. God is doing by a gift of grace, a great work in our faith family. 
So why the book of Acts? Because as we are growing, it is time, hear me this morning, because I'm going to get fired up about this. You go ahead and get fired up too. Because we are growing, it is time for us to go to a totally different level of our engagement in the mission that God has given us to do. That's why the book of Acts. Because it's going to challenge us in two ways that may make us feel uncomfortable. And the first is we have to think bigger. And I don't just mean in numbers, I mean in gospel impact, that we want to make a larger dent for the sake of the gospel here in Burnsville, in the South Metro, and around the world. And so, you're going to hear us talk about over the next few weeks uh, the fact that our goal uh, by fall of 2016 is to have a second campus. Uh, It is our desire that we will be a multi-campus church, not just here in Burnsville, but around the South Metro, because in the book of Acts, the church multiplies, and we feel like in light of what God has done here, that it is time for us to expand out there. But not just expand out there, we also have commissioned a team to start researching how we can expand this current facility, because we do not believe that we're done here in Burnsville. We believe God continue, uh, will continue to grow this as well. And then, in the meantime, how do we continue to make space for the people that God is sending us while we are working on that next campus, while we are working on what this campus will look like? Well, starting in October... We will have a live venue in the entire gymnasium, okay, just just outside the sanctuary here. And it's not going to be just an overflow. It will be a live venue, live worship. Uh, The only thing is I'll be in here, not in there. I can't be at two places at one time. And so the preaching will be on the screen and everything else will be a live worship venue. And so we feel like, folks, it's time. We can't think small, We've got to think big in terms of gospel impact and continuing to reach people for Jesus. Not only will Acts challenge us to think bigger, it's also going to challenge us to think outward. Nothing kills a church faster than inward thinking, particularly a church that's over 50 years old. And so we want us to understand that our mission is not to provide religious services, it's to proclaim the gospel, amen? I mean, I'll offend some of you, but that's okay, we could use the seat. Uh, (laughs) if If you want a group that gives you a relaxing experience and caters to your need, there's a country club that would love for you to join. But if you want to be a part of a group that challenges you to sacrifice yourself to the point that it hurts because you believe in the mission of Jesus, you're right where you should be. Acts will not let us just think about ourselves inside these walls. It will force us to think about out there and how do we advance the gospel. That's why we'll be talking about transforming our connect groups to what, as you've already heard, we are calling missional communities. The mission of the church is not Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is needed. It's wonderful. But Christian fellowship is partnership for the sake of the mission. 
for the sake of the gospel. In fact, if Christian fellowship doesn't lead to mission, it isn't Christian fellowship. And the book of Acts will prove that over and over and over again. So why the book of Acts? Because in light of what God has been doing, it is time now in our faith family to think bigger in terms of gospel impact and to think outward in terms of gospel reach. And that's precisely what we, led by the Spirit of God, are going to do. Now, why the book of Acts? Because as our faith family is on the move with the gospel, I want us to learn from and be inspired by the early church as they were on the move with the gospel. Does this make anybody nervous? Does it overwhelm you? Can I, can I encourage you this morning? Come on in. Come on in. Me too. But that's why we're a faith family. I don't want to give myself to anything that doesn't require faith. I'm not here for comfortable church. I want to be a part of a movement centered in Jesus that makes me uncomfortable and makes me have to look to God and say, God, you're going to have to do this because I can't. I want us to be uncomfortable because that's when faith gets applied, and that's what the Christian life is all about. And by the way, isn't it great that we even get to have this conversation? I could be before you saying, I don't know how we're going to keep the doors open. God has been gracious to us. So would you please, please join me over the next few weeks in praying for that God would do in us what he does in the book of Acts, ignite a people by the power of the Holy Spirit to do impossible things for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Let's do this. Acts chapter 1. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. That's just the sermon before the sermon, by the way. Now you can start timing me. All that was free. <laughs> Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 and following, but for our scripture reading, let's just uh, start with verse 6. Luke writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. God, we give you praise for what you're doing in this faith family. It is all of you, and you are the only one that deserves the glory. It's a gift of grace. But God, I don't believe, and I think many in this place do not believe that you're through yet. I believe, God, you are calling us to a whole nother level of mission engagement. So now as we look at your word, would you light that fire in us for the gospel, for the mission, for you? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It was a small town, a small church, and a young pastor. Uh, the church could probably be best described as apathetic. 
unmoved by the Word of God, lacking any zeal whatsoever for Christ. The pastor could be described as young and inexperienced in the ministry. It had all the makings for an absolute disaster. But what God did would send a ripple effect all across America. That young pastor started simply preaching the gospel that every single one of us is separated from God because of our sin. But God so loved us that He sent Jesus who died on the cross, who rose from the grave, and we can be reconciled to God through Him. And as that young, inexperienced preacher started proclaiming that boldly and unashamedly, God started capturing hearts. Lives started being changed. Family dynamics started to be changed. And before long, what was happening in that church started to impact the city. And what impacted the city started to impact surrounding cities. And what was impacting the surrounding cities, before long, all of New England had been turned on its head by the power of God. That young, inexperienced pastor was Jonathan Edwards. That once apathetic small congregation was the Congregational Church of Northampton. The movement was the Great Awakening. And here's how Edwards describes it. Come on, faith family, dream with me as you hear these words that God would do this work. This soon made a glorious alteration in the town. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. Parents rejoicing over their children. Husbands their wives. Wives their husbands. And the things of God were then seen in His sanctuary. God's day was a delight. Our public assemblies were beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth, the assembly was from time to time in tears. While the word was preached, some weeping out of sorrow and distress, others out of joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. If I know anything at all, I know this. God has a way of taking little things and doing mighty things. An apathetic church, an inexperienced pastor, a a small army of Gideon that defeats a mighty army of the Midianites, a a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread and it feeds over 5,000, a church that described in Scripture as not of noble birth and yet impacts a pagan city called Corinth. I'm telling you, faith family, God is a God who can take little things and do mighty things in His power. And it's what we see in Acts 1. You see, if you know anything about the book of Acts, you know that the world is about to be turned upside down. Do you know how I know you know that? You're sitting right here right now in Minnesota experiencing it. 
Acts is our story, the story of the church. It turns the world upside down. And so the question would be, how does such a mighty work of God get launched? I know, I know, I know. Politicians pass legislation. Wall Street investors pony up some money. Harvard business professors put together a good business model. That's not what you find in Acts 1. What you find in Acts 1 is a group of ex-fishermen and some social outcasts, a small group of people, and yet God is about to do a mighty thing. Why? Because they've got four things that produces a work of God and a gospel movement. Here's the first, and it's an absolute confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 1, in the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, time out, what's the first book? I told you Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He's also the author of the gospel of Luke. Luke, Acts, is a two-volume work. And Acts picks up where Luke leaves off. It's like, how many of you like DVR shows, you know, CSI or, or Law and Order or whatever, you know, Sanford and Son or whatever, you know? And sometimes the episode starts with the final scene of the previous episode. That is to remind you where you left off. That's exactly what Acts 1 is doing. So how did Luke 24 end? with Jesus appearing to his disciples. How does Acts 1 begin? Jesus appearing to his disciples. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus appears to his disciples. That's how Luke ends. That's how Acts starts. Why? Do you remember how the disciples responded when Jesus was laid in the grave? They were devastated. In fact, they thought the whole thing was completely over. Thomas Do you remember Thomas? Thomas says, I won't believe unless I have physical evidence. If I can't put my hands in the nail prints, I will not believe. Thomas thought, like the other disciples, that maybe Jesus is right. Maybe it really is finished. But what happens? Jesus appears to his disciples, and his disciples are changed forever. Cowards become bold. Men who did not want to die are now willing to die for their faith. Why? Because they encountered a risen Savior. Let me ask you something. Why are so many Christians living dead when Jesus is alive? Come on, where's the boldness? Where's the faith? Our Savior's not dead. He's alive. So what are you afraid of? They were little. They were small. But do you know who they had on their side? A man who walked out of the grave. 
It's why Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. How did he know that? Go back a few verses. Concerning his son, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God and the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God. Do you know why it's powerful? Because it's all about one who walked out of the grave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, if Christ is not... I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit excited. Am I yelling? It sounds like I'm yelling. (laughs) I'm excited. If Christ has not been raised, your faith's in vain. But, newsflash, good newsflash, Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me give you one more because I love to beat a dead horse. Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you know that verse? What comes right after it? Who is to condemn Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that who is raised and as at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. At some point, Easter has got to stop being a holiday you celebrate and a life you live. 20 people are fired up about that. What, what, what takes this little thing and makes it a mighty thing? It is, come on, track with me, it's a group of people, a group of disciples who have very little skill, and yet what they believe in because they see is that Jesus is risen, and that gives them a boldness to live for him. How can your faith be dead when Jesus is alive? And so do you want God to take this little thing we call Berean Baptist Church? It's little in comparison to redemptive history. It's little in light of the metro. It's little in light of the nations. But God can take it and do a mighty thing if we start living like we actually believe that Jesus is alive. Number two. They not only had a confidence in the resurrection, they had a clarity a total understanding of what Jesus called them to do, the mission. Look at verse 6. When they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know. The times are the seasons for the Father is fixed by his own authority. So here's what happens. Okay, so the disciples see Jesus and he's alive and so kind of a light bulb goes off. They know the Old Testament, and they know that there's going to be a literal earthly reign of Jesus, that the kingdom is going to come, and it's going to cover the earth. And so they assume that's now. The problem was they were concerned about when the kingdom of God was coming, and Jesus wants them to understand how the kingdom of God is going to advance. That day is going to come, but until then, there's actually a how this kingdom is going to be at hand. And so here's what you need to do, disciples. Like, I know that you're wanting to pull out your prophecy charts and you're wanting to stare up into the heavens and you're wanting to figure out all these other things that are important things, but they're not the main thing. Let's get one thing clear. It's not 
time for you to know all the things that the Father has planned. But here's the one thing I want you to know with absolute certainty. Verse 8. You will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right here, faith family. Jesus could not have been more clear. What I want from you, what I'm calling you to do, what you will do if the Spirit is on you is be my witnesses. In fact, if you look in Luke chapter 24, it's precisely what Jesus says when he appears to his disciples. Listen to verse 47. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Right here. What has Jesus called us to do? Have Bible studies. I love Bible study. Have fellowship groups. We need that. Come to a worship service. I'm so glad you're here. Come back. But this is not the end. These things are simply means to equip you to go be a witness for what you've seen and heard. Jesus didn't stutter. He was absolutely clear to this small little group of disciples, here's where I want your focus to be. Be my witnesses. Now we can get uncomfortable with that word witness. Uh, For some of us, images come up in our mind of like door-to-door evangelism, like, all right, that means I got to go knock on doors this afternoon or stand in the street corner. You overcomplicate the word witness, martus in the Greek. It simply means this, one who reports what he has seen or heard. A witness doesn't need to be a theologian. A witness doesn't need to have all the answers to all the questions. In fact, go home and read John 9. I love what happens in John 9. Do you remember the story when Jesus sees a man who's been blind from birth? You remember he, he takes uh, dirt and mud and like spit and, you know, mixes it together and puts it on the guy's eyes and he goes down to the pool and he's able to see. Do you remember what happens after that? Like everybody wants to know all the answers. Like, well, who did that? And how did it happen? And what was it like? And they start just pegging him with questions. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know all the details. I don't even know where Jesus went. He was gone somewhere. And they call in the religious police, the Pharisees, and they pull out their checklist. And oh, we got to have an explanation for this. And, and what about this? And was it done on the Sabbath? And da, 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 and blah, 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 and back and forth. They even call the guy's parents in. And when all is said and done, I love it. Here's what it said. You know what? We don't have all the answers. But here's what we know. He once was blind, but now he sees. An encounter with Jesus is all that qualifies you to be a witness for Jesus. So I guess the big question is, have you encountered him? 
Because I don't know how you could encounter him and not be a witness for him. The essential purpose of the people of God is the mission of God. And I don't want anything in this faith family to get us sidetracked from that. Because if we want God to take a little thing and do a mighty thing, we must absolutely believe to the point that it impacts how we live the resurrection of Jesus. And we must be absolutely clear, not on what about this and what about that and and is it going to happen now? No, just do this. Be my witness to the ends of the earth. Number three, how did God take this little thing and do a mighty thing. It wasn't just that they had confidence in the resurrection. It wasn't just that they were absolutely clear on the mission. But if we stopped there, it still wouldn't be enough because what we have is still a group of unqualified men. In fact, I would argue this. Never has a more important task been given to a more unqualified group of people. Both then and now. So there's a a sense in which the reader ought to start asking, do they have the resources to do this? And the answer is no. (laughs) How's that for encouragement? You actually can't do what I just told you to do. Feel helpless? Good. Now you're ready for something. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, there ain't nothing make a Baptist more nervous than talking about the Holy Spirit, all right? People, oh, no, people going to be hanging from the rafters and jumping over the seats and, oh, pastor done gone Holy Spirit. Can we just be really clear? Because, by the way, we're going to be in the book of Acts for a while talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. Can we just be really clear on who the Holy Spirit is? You might jot these things down. This is a quick, like, 30-second run-through of the Holy Spirit. Number one is He's a person. He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not a ghost. He's a He, according to the Bible. He is the third person of the Trinity. And I know you're like, Trinity, that, that, that's a mystery, and, and people like try all kinds of ridiculous ways to try to describe it. It's kind of like water and ice and vapor. Answer, no, it's not. You know, it's kind of like a, an actor who comes out in different points. Of, no, no, it's not. Stop trying to explain the mystery because you end up committing heresy. Just admit that God is bigger than your little mind can understand. Amen? I'm quite comfortable with that. In fact, I don't want a God that my mind can fully understand. How small would he have to be? You think that's a comment about my brain. I know how you took that. Really, of all the things you amen, you amen that, right? (laughs) He is a person, He is God, and He leads us to truth. Not confusion, not hysteria. He is the Spirit of truth, and Jesus said He will guide you to truth. 
He glorifies Jesus. John 16, Jesus said the Spirit's going to come and He's going to glorify me. And Acts will prove that. But here's what it tells us, and I'm not trying to make a dig, I'm just trying to preach the Word. If you're in a place that's exalting the Spirit, that's a good sign that the Spirit's actually not at work. But you show me a place that's all about Jesus, that's loving Jesus, that's preaching Jesus, that's trying to become like Jesus, then that's a place where the Spirit of God is alive and well. People say the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity. I think the Holy Spirit's perfectly fine with that because He wants all glory to be given to Christ. And He, if you're a Christian, dwells in us. If you're a Christian, the Spirit is in you. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 3, that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Well, now we get to what does it mean in Acts 1 that the Spirit comes on us? There are two words for power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Two words for power. First is exousia. It means authority. It's like this. A a police officer has the authority to pull you over, right? He doesn't physically take your car and pull it to the side of the road. His presence, the authority, has an authority to have you pull over. Some of you have experienced that recently. It's an authority, exousia. The other word is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite, It's a a power, it's a, a strength, it's an ability. And here's the thing, when the Spirit comes on us, God is given us the authority to be His witnesses and the ability to be His witnesses. That's what it means for the Spirit of God to come on you. It's not that complicated. It's this, what gives you the authority to walk out these doors and proclaim the gospel? God gives you that authority in the Spirit. You don't have that authority on your own. Well, what gives me the ability when my knees are shaking and my, my teeth are shattering and my palms are sweaty and I don't feel like I can do this? God gives you the Holy Spirit, the ability, the dynamite to do what you otherwise could not do. Here's the problem. The reason why most of us have never experienced that power is because we've never put ourselves in a situation where we've needed that power. You don't need the power of the Holy Spirit when you're sitting on your Christian lazy boy. You don't need the power of the Holy Spirit when all you do is surround yourself with Christians. You need the power on you that is the authority to be a witness and the ability to be a witness when you activate your faith in God because you're on the mission of God. That's when you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, God will take a little thing like you and do a mighty thing. How did this little thing become such a mighty thing. They were absolutely convinced that Jesus was alive. Are you? Don't give me your theology. I'm asking, does that impact how you live? Are you weeding away all the distractions of your life so that you're clear about what Jesus has commanded you to do, to be his witness? And are you relying not on your own strength and authority, but the Holy Spirit coming on you when you need Him to be a witness for the gospel? Last thing, 
is a commitment to one another. I could preach a whole other sermon here. Somebody make a motion for 45 extra minutes. I think I heard it in the overflow, so here we go. God, give me the words. Um, Nothing destroys the advancement of the mission of God more than the disunity of the church. It is interesting in verse 4 that Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait. I think if I'd have been there, knowing my personality type, I'd have been, say what? Wait? Let's do this now. Let's go. And Jesus says, but you're not ready. You're not ready. Because something needs to happen over the next 10 days before the Spirit comes. Verse 14. All these, that is those listed in verse 13, with one accord. What'd they do? They came together. All eyes right here, faith family. God will not take this little thing and do a mighty thing if we're only about our thing. That'll preach, won't it? The mission of Jesus must be our mission over anything else. It's why in the book of Proverbs, one of the things that God hates, which ought to get our attention, is someone who, dis- who sows discord among the brothers. What was the one thing Jesus prayed for before he went to the cross? The unity of his followers. Why? Nothing will hinder the mission of Christ more than the disunity of the church. These people came together with one accord, and then notice what they did, verse 14 again, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Isn't that a beautiful scene? Man, like, get it in your mind. We've just seen Jesus. We've just been given this wonderful mission. We've just been promised that the Holy Spirit's going to come and enable us to do it. And the picture is a group of people coming together and praying that God would do this. A broken, desperate people, broken before God, committed to one another, Because this wasn't just a personal mission. It was the mission of the bride of Christ. And therefore, they must come together. And they believed, I believe, that little prayers could accomplish big things. I end with this. It was a small church Dying, in fact. Considering whether or not they would have to close their doors. But it wasn't in a small town. It was actually in a large city. New York City. The man wasn't a pastor. He was actually an untrained layperson. A man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear. 
He walked the streets of New York and he noticed every day some 30,000 businessmen that would work there in the financial district of New York, and they had absolutely no relationship with God whatsoever, and he felt broken over his city, broken over his church, and so he decided to have a prayer meeting. Wednesday, 12 o'clock to 1, we're going to pray in our little church. He invited everybody. He walked the streets. He announced the prayer meeting. And when Wednesday came at 12 o'clock on the nose, he looked out over the congregation and no one was there. He waited. Five minutes passed, 10 minutes passed, 15 minutes passed. Finally, at 1230, one person out of New York City showed up to pray. They started praying. By one o'clock, six people had arrived. They decided we'll do this again next week on Wednesday, but next week 14 people showed up. They said, let's do it again. The next week 23 people showed up. They said, let's do it again. The next week 40 people showed up. And six months later, 10,000 businessmen were meeting together not just on Wednesday, but every day to pray in over 20 different locations. It is said that one man came with the intent on killing a woman and then committing suicide. And when he heard all the prayers being lifted up, he said, what must I do to be saved? And he was. There was one father who prayed out loud for his son, not knowing his son was in the back of the church. His son, hearing his father pray for him, surrendered his life to God. And the prayer revival of 1857 spread across America and around the world. You look right here. Here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that whether it is a young pastor in an apathetic church or an untrained layman in a dying church, whether it is a group of ex-fishermen who are devastated because their leader just died, I'm convinced that our God can take little things and do mighty things. So the question is, what's he going to do with us? Let's pray. God, would you do for us what you did for the disciples in Acts 1, and that is to strip away everything that we're focused on so that we can focus on the thing that matters most. Here's what we believe. Jesus is alive. You have given us a mission. You have promised us the power of the Spirit. May we come together right now in desperation for you to do that in us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people, you with me? Said, Amen. Amen. Amen.